Hello and welcome to this episode of the Forget What You Think You Know podcast. I'm Katie Goodger, a graduate trainee at the Local Government Association. Last year, I attended the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP26, where organisations, governments and businesses came together to try to reach an agreement to tackle the climate emergency. In the previous episode of this podcast, I talked to a number of experts about the outcomes of the summit and what action is needed, as well as the importance of hearing diverse voices in climate discussions. Now, three months on, I want to find out more about what is actually taking place on the ground to address climate change and how communities can be involved in this vital issue. First off, I spoke to Councillor Martin Alvey, Portfolio Holder for Environment and Climate Change at Cornwall Council. Cornwall recently won an award for their work in responding to the climate emergency and I wanted to find out about the work they have carried out locally and how councils across the country can take a lead on tackling climate change. Hi Martin and thank you for speaking with me today. Cornwall Council won the Municipal Journal Award for its leadership in responding to the climate emergency. Could you tell us about some of the projects the council has been working on? Yes, certainly. And and I think, first of all, um, I've got to acknowledge the fact that, uh, that our success in, in winning the award came about as a result of a, a lot of hard work uh, by by my pre- predecessor um, on the Cabinet and the, the staff, of course, um, within the, the Council. It, it brought together, as well as our clear plan and strategy as to how we, as a Council, are going to work towards achieving net zero and also working towards getting Cornwall as a duchy also um, to that ambitious target of net zero by 2030. It recognised many of the projects and initiatives that we in Cornwall have either initiated since the declaration of our climate emergency back in January 2019 or already had in plan but we're able to then to, to turbocharge in, in bringing to um, reality. So examples are things like our Forest for Cornwall project and, and our ambition to actually see an 8,000 hectare increase in canopy cover across the whole of Cornwall between now and 2030, uh, representing a massive tree planting exercise, but not just Cornwall Council planting trees, this initiative is going to be promoting the opportunities for all walks of life in Cornwall to become involved in tree planting, whether they be landed estates, planning developments, parish and town councils, schools or other community groups. Another response is that recognition that as a duchy, we have incredible natural resources for the generation of renewable energy. So we already have a very, very large array of both wind and solar generation going on within the duchy but we want to again increase that massively. Cornwall is the first area in the country to be able to properly explore the opportunities for geothermal energy. We've got projects now across the county whereby drilling technology originally coming from the oil industry is being used to bore holes over five kilometres down into Cornwall to access the granite geology, which generates immense heat. And we are proving that we can generate geothermal energy from here in Cornwall, which will eventually not just power Cornwall, but be exportable to other parts of the country. We've, as a council, actually um, installed our own massive 
uh, wind turbine at a little village called Venton Teague. This, this turbine, though, is different to all of the others in Cornwall, and it's what's called a smart turbine. So as well as generating the electricity, it has a, a massive battery storage attached to it, which enables that electricity to then be released when it's needed, not just when the wind's blowing. We're working with a company called Bannermans to look at how we can not just make the livestock on our county farms greener, but also improve the way that we power our vehicles. So Bannermans are working in a project um, whereby they are covering the slurry pits on some of our county farms, our, our dairy farms. From that, they are then generating biomethane, which can then be sold and is being purchased by Cormac, which is our in-house management company that looks after uh, our roads and our environmental estate to power its vehicles. So a true circular economy there, reducing the, the carbon impact of the dairy industry, but also ensuring the, the carbon neutral powering of our vehicles. And do you think the councils are in a good position to take forward climate action and work um, towards achieving net zero? I, I think we are. And um, it's it's been acknowledged by the, uh, the the government who, as you, you're you aware, um, came down to Cornwall back in June uh, for the G7. And the focus of that G7 was around uh, the climate emergency. So the the government has, has openly said that they would like to see Cornwall as the first net zero region of the UK. And uh, you know, we are working towards that ambition. So we, we are enthused by it. Having said that, in order to achieve that, we have many asks of government. We know that our ambition to, to hit net zero, not just as a council, but Cornwall as a whole, by 2030, is, is a challenging target. And we know that we will not achieve it on our own. And we know that there has to be primary legislation and government support in order for us to do that. And what do you think councils can do to be the most effective when it comes to tackling climate change? Several things. First of all, you have got to have a good baseline from where you're starting. Yeah, Unless you know where you've been, you don't know where you're going. Um, we've worked very closely with the University of Exeter, which has a campus down here in Penryn with some of the leading climate scientists in the world. So we were able very early in this process after declaring climate emergency to, to get a very strong baseline on where we are. We have from that built a very detailed plan both for Cornwall and as a council of what we need to do to remain on trajectory to, to hit that net zero target. Yes we are fortunate to have the University of Exeter on our doorstep and strong working relationships with them but climate change is studied across the university sector in this country, and those universities are all willing to work with local authorities. The council may even be able to um, provide some financial support for the work with the university, but more often than not, the university itself is grateful for the opportunity to, to actually carry out these exercises for real rather than theoretically. As a result of the decision to declare the climate emergency, one of the things that we found 
was going to be fundamental was having a robust way in which we could measure every decision that as a council we made against the impact uh, in terms of our carbon footprint and our climate emergency. And as a result of that, we adapted uh, something known as donut economics and a decision wheel. If you look now at any decision that, um, or paper that comes out from Cornwall Council, there is a decision wheel in which the impact of the, uh, the carbon impact of that decision um, will have. And, and that will be a fundamental part of the decision making process. In populating that, that wheel, the staff member that is carrying out the assessment will be going through a very complex set of questions, objective data input behind the scenes, which will show if, if it's a positive, negative or neutral impact on uh, the carbon footprint of making that decision. From that, the decision can then be made in, in the full knowledge um, of the impact and, of course, the more green, the more positives that we, we see in terms of the, the, the carbon impact of the decision, the better. So are there any limitations as to what a council can do to adapt and mitigate the impacts of climate change? The limitations are partly that it does cost money to um, in, in terms of officer time uh, and it does rely on public and political will. Um, to do so. You, you have to work with what you've got um, and to a degree you have to accept the fact that for all the will in the world you're not going to get everyone out of their car in Cornwall or you're not going to get everybody to change their, their lifestyle. So, so it's about encouraging people to make small steps. Little things such as shopping locally where possible maybe instead of getting in the car to go a mile up the road to try and walk or, or think of uh, other form of active uh, travel, such as getting on your bicycle. Uh, we encourage everyone to change their energy supplier to one that uses renewable energy. And I appreciate that at the moment the changing of energy suppliers is, is, is a bit of a moot um, subject because of the, um, the problems that are currently ongoing. But when all that settles down, again, try and ensure that you're, you're working with a, sorry, using an energy supplier that uh, uses net uh, carbon neutral energy. We encourage everybody to go on the internet and find one of the many tools that are out there to measure their own carbon footprint. So there's, there's an awful lot there that we can encourage people to be doing as individuals, but we have to also be leading by example. And that's a challenge in itself, because some of the decisions that we make as a council, we are criticised for by particularly the most passionate end of the environment lobby. Some, some of our decisions are made on economic grounds rather than pure carbon footprint grounds. I'll give you an example. Cornwall has got an airport at Newquay, which has a public service order with government to enable the subsidy of a linking flight between Newquay and Gatwick Airport. That causes a considerable amount of upset from the climate lobby, but at the same time, the economic development lobby sees it as vital to bring good jobs and good business down into Cornwall, a region of the, the country that, that is known for its low GDP. What our aim is to actually compensate for those bad elements by going above and beyond 
in, in terms of our other activities to, to reduce our carbon footprint. You know, we recognise that there is 20% of the population who are already totally engaged with, um, with carbon reduction, but there's also 20% at the other end who, for whatever reason, it might be that they deny that there is an impact of climate change happening. It might be that they just don't wish to change their lifestyle. We, we appreciate the amount of time and effort that goes into trying to to persuade that 20% at the bottom is probably better spent bringing that 60% in the middle along the, along the journey. And, and we feel that we're having a lot of success in that. So it's clear that Cornwall Council is taking climate change seriously and they're demonstrating the actions that other councils can take. One thing Martin talked about was what individuals can do in their daily lives to help tackle climate change. But how do we get people to engage directly with the issues to help shape the decisions made by councils and politicians? I talked to Peter Bryan of Shared Future to find out. I'm one of the directors of Shared Future. We're a not-for-profit that's been around since 2009. Our reason for existing, I guess, is because we believe that citizens have a right to be involved in the decision-making processes that affect their communities and their neighbourhoods. And we think that um, that involvement needs to not just be restricted to ticking a box once every four or five years when you vote for your politicians, but instead um, realises and harnesses the power and capacity of citizens to drive forward uh, things that work in their own communities. Um, so we specialise in what we call democratic innovations like uh, deliberative democracy, citizens' juries, assemblies, participatory budgeting and, and, and other approaches. And so it sounds like you work a lot with um, individual citizens and their councils. Can I ask why you chose to partner with them? Well, I mean, local government is absolutely crucial, isn't it, in terms of um, safeguarding and improving our quality of life, I guess, and coordinating and mobilising local resources that, that allow that to happen. But I think uh, for us, it's about working with local authorities to um, stimulate uh, citizens and communities to be able to take action themselves. Great. And can you share any examples of projects you're working on with councils at the moment? Yeah, OK. So uh, at the moment, we're doing a lot of work around uh, climate change and in particular examples of deliberative uh, processes on climate change. So uh, tomorrow evening, we start a climate change citizens jury with the uh, borough of Barrow and Furness in, in Cumbria. Um, so we'll be working with 20 citizens that have been randomly selected from across uh, the borough to try and answer the question, what should happen in the Furness area to address climate change? Uh, so we're running a, a similar process for Southwark Council, which is going to be starting in a couple of weeks time. Both of them lasting for like about 30 hours. And in Southwark, um, we'll be working with 25 citizens there that have been randomly chosen using the same process to try to answer the question, what needs to change in Southwark to tackle the emergency of climate change fairly and effectively for people and for nature? We are also doing something over the last couple of months um, in conjunction with Glasgow City Council called Democracy Pioneers, which is experimenting with uh, leg legislative theatre and as a way of trying to amplify young people's voices on, on the issue of climate change. And you mentioned um, using citizens' juries. Could you just explain a little bit more about how they work, why you chose to use them and who can get involved with them? Sure, yeah. So um, 
Citizens' juries and citizens' assemblies, juries are smaller versions of assemblies, are uh, both examples of deliberative processes. Deliberation can happen in lots and lots of different ways. Um, and the way that, that we usually work with local authorities to design juries and assemblies is that, um, for example, if I can give the, uh, give the example of Barrow, 4,000 letters were sent out to um, randomly chosen addresses from the Royal Mail database. Um, and households got those letters, inviting them to take part in 10 evening sessions, a total of around about 30 hours, to try to answer that key question about what needs to happen to, to address the emergency of climate change. Then uh, a group of 20, 30, 40, 100, however big the process is, are chosen um, usually through an organization, an independent organization called the Sortition Foundation. Um, to try to reflect the makeup of the local population so that what you end up with is a, is a mini version of Barrow or a mini version of Southwark or, or wherever. Once people have expressed an interest in taking part, we select, the, the computer selects them so that we have a mini version of the local population in terms of age, gender, ethnicity, disability, geography, indices of multiple deprivation, so how advantaged or disadvantaged a particular area is, as well as attitudes to climate change so the idea is that when you join the zoom call or when you walk into the room you'll see a, a mini version of your your wider community right there and then we spend lots of time supporting them to feel comfortable sharing their ideas and opinions with each other and then we bring out a series of outside experts we call them commentators to offer their opinions and ideas and facts to the to the jury who then question them and and uh, cross-examine them, if you like, until towards the end of the process where we support the citizens themselves to write a series of recommendations and try, if possible, to build some consensus. Then they prioritise those recommendations. And then that, that report is then presented back to key local decision makers and stakeholders, including local authorities, to try to push for action. So it gives uh, leaders a mandate, more of a mandate, to be able to take action themselves. And Pete, it sounds like you've got lots of experience working with deliberative democracy. Can you explain what this is um, and whether you think it works for climate action initiatives and perhaps any other ideas or innovative techniques? Deliberative democracy, I think for us, is about uh, recognising the expertise that citizens themselves hold. And a deliberative process is is different to one that you might see in a in a focus group, for example, in that it's a, it's a, over a longer period of time. So we have to understand, like with climate change, it's an enormously complex issue. Um, so we can't just ask people to, you know, tell us your opinions on what needs to happen to climate change in the next 30 minutes. It just it doesn't allow that kind of informed conversation and, and people to consider the trade offs that are going to be necessary. So deliberation is about really listening to each other in a diverse group hearing each other's ideas, each other's opinions, sometimes pushing each other, sometimes arguing, uh, sometimes trying to trying to understand really where people are coming from on a particular issue and then seeing if it's possible to draw some consensus and then to draw some conclusions at the end of that. So it recognises that not one side has all the or has all the answers, but that if we come together and use our collective wisdom, we might be able to solve or might be able to think of ways of trying to address this seemingly intractable problem. Uh, in terms of climate change, we're looking at 
absolutely enormous changes to society. So we can't afford to not have these really well-informed conversations with citizens to help shape what our response is going to be to climate change. And I think for um, for those that are worried how this fits in with, with representative democracy, I think it, it if anything, it strengthens representative democracy. Uh, it gives those needing to make these difficult decisions more information about how to make better decisions. And I think it also goes some way to trying to address some of the vested interests that might exist and some of the, the, the power imbalances, especially in terms of bringing people whose voices aren't always heard in these kind of conversations. And do you think that um, local government and councils are in a good position to take climate action forward and engage those different groups of people in their own communities? Yeah, I really do. I mean, I think we've seen over the over the past few weeks the the enormous challenge of COP26 in Glasgow of trying to achieve collective action at, at a global level. It's 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 virtually impossible. So I think that shines a light maybe on how important it is that all other levels of society are engaged in this process of trying to figure out what action needs to be taken to address the climate emergency. And I think uh, the National Audit Office said that half of the decisions that uh, half of the cuts rather that need to be made to emissions in the UK, decisions about those cuts need to be made at a local level. So local authority is absolutely central to that. And I think there's there's three other reasons maybe why local authorities are well placed. The first is control. And although local authorities don't have a huge amount of power. They do have some control over um, transport planning, over waste management, over economic regeneration, over land use planning. Uh, second, I think, is, is an issue of trust. So uh, the LGA's own research has shown that 40% of uh, citizens feel that councils, they, they trust councils most to be able to address the issue of climate change compared to national government, which I think was 28%. But I also think there's a, a third issue, and that is that, you know, local authorities are rooted in their own communities, they understand their own communities, so they are really well placed to be able to address uh, climate change and make sure that citizens are at the centre of that. And that leadership role is is absolutely essential. So be it about um, making budgetary decisions or policy decisions, but also in terms of uh, convening and bringing all these different stakeholders together and forming partnerships, as well as using the, the language of ambition, I guess. In, in, and we, we've seen a really good example of that in terms of framing everything as an emergency in the climate emergency, and local authorities have been at the centre of that. If there are um, individuals who might have received letters of invitation to citizen juries, what would you say to encourage them to participate in them with the benefits that they can actually see as well? I'm reminded of uh, a conversation I had with a participant from a, a jury in Blackburn. I was asking him why he'd come along and he said, um, well, my wife said to me when we got the letter, we were reading the letter together and, and, and she said, you're always moaning about this stuff why don't you just do it? Why don't you go ahead and, and have your voice heard? And he, and he said, yeah. So, so what I did was I got off my ass and I came to this, I came to the jury and, and I have no regrets whatsoever. So um, I would urge people to, to recognise that it doesn't matter if you don't have much experience or understanding. 
and maybe feel as though your voice isn't as important as others when in fact it really, really is and that we're only going to be able to solve these enormous issues by having these kind of conversations that allow people to use their expertise and to maybe come up with novel ideas or to push politicians for the for the actions that are required in, on, on these um, really, really difficult topics. I think if, if these processes are designed well, they're fun as well and, and people should feel comfortable taking part. Uh, I, and I would un I understand completely those that would think, oh, God, what's this? It's just another bloody tick box exercise. Why on earth am I going to get involved in that? But it has led to real change in, in a lot of places. So um, in Oxford, it led to I, I think it was 13 million pounds of additional funding being identified to match with some of the recommendations. Uh, so that's for a, a big local authority, but we've been working as well with smaller local authorities and town councils. So we ran one recently for Kendall Town Council, and although they don't have much money or resources, they were still able to use their kind of convening and leadership role. And they've recently announced that they've commissioned a, an audit of all buildings across the town to see what the solar potential is. So um, although it might feel that these things might not make a difference, they they will for sure and a lot of officers and politicians have reported that once they've had the recommendations that have come through the process that they feel kind of emboldened to have more conversations with others about pushing the climate change agenda in this case forward with much more vigour. It was great to know about the efforts being made to involve people in climate discussions and to get their opinions and ideas heard before the decisions are made. But I was also curious about what support is out there for those local community groups and organisations who are taking direct actions themselves on climate change. I spoke to Nick Gardner from the National Lottery Community Fund to find out about the diverse projects they have supported across the country. Hi, my name's Nick Gardner. I'm Head of Climate Action at the National Lottery Community Fund. And here at the Community Fund, we've been increasingly looking at the way that we respond to the climate emergency. Uh, we have a three-part environment strategy, which helps us to explore our own impacts um, as an organisation. The first is very directly looking at ourselves as an organisation and how we can reduce our carbon emissions. The second looks at how we can leverage our position across the whole of the sector. We fund upwards of 12,000 community groups every year. So how can we make sure that our touch points with those are encouraging the sector to be more ambitious on the climate issue and making sure that people are aware of the impact uh, of their operations? And the third is a very specific pot of funding, the Climate Action Fund, which is a hundred million pound commitment to supporting communities who are taking climate action locally all across the UK. Increasingly, climate is a very big theme uh, in terms of what communities are telling us is important to them. So over the last five years, since 2016, we've actually funded almost £400 million into environmental projects. So that would include things like transport, energy, food, waste and consumption, natural environment projects, those kind of things. And it's absolutely becoming a very, very core strand of what we're seeing it matters to communities on the ground. Could you tell us about some of the projects that you're supporting? We have a huge range of innovative projects within our portfolio. Uh, the Climate Action Fund, which was launched in 2019, uh, really targeted uh, communities who wanted to take the lead uh, on tackling climate change within their local areas. And very often, the partnerships that were put together uh, had a council as a key player or even potentially the lead in their applications. One of our first round funded projects, which is Zero Carbon Cumbria, uh, the county is aiming for 
uh, zero carbon by 2030. But in order to achieve that, the local community groups and very much supported uh, by the coordinating groups on the ground have worked very closely with the seven local authorities in Cumbria. So that's the county council, but also the six district councils or borough councils across the area. Another big part of it is really helping to engage the local population. For example, young people, as we're very, very aware, are very, very keen activists on the issue. So there was a delegation of young people which was able to present the outcomes of its own youth climate summit to the county council lead, the cabinet member for environment, as well as Cumbria Action for Sustainability, their CEO, at a particular meeting and, and they were able to get across their points really clearly, really succinctly and be able to be seen to be having a part to play. Thanks to national lottery players, big amounts of funding can go into supporting really impactful climate projects at a local level, many of which have a key partnership with their local authority on the ground. Because we have such a wide range of projects working in very urban areas, such as an inner city program in London, which is looking at how communities can generate their own power through solar panels on their housing stock and making sure that the communities are very involved with that whole process. That project is called Repowering, and it's looking to train local people up to become part of that new economy. So understanding how they can install solar panels, work with their local housing providers. And it's a sister project to a a great project called Energy Garden, which is working with the transport network and making sure that community-owned energy is built into the transport assets, such as the stations. So that's a that's a very urban example. And on the other end of the scale, you know, we have very rural communities who are also taking action locally. So, for example, there's a, a small town called Bude in Cornwall, uh, which is on the front edge of uh, climate change. They are really seeing every year the sea pushing in towards their communities as sea level rises and various uh, houses have been lost locally. It's a big issue. People have been able to show through that project how that climate issue is really impacting on their lives. And what they're doing is a series of research projects to understand the impact on the local transport system, the impact on the local economy and in particular tourism and how to engage different parts of the community uh, with playing their part in tackling the climate emergency and adapting to it. So making their community more resilient. And in Wales, we have a fantastic project being led by the Wildlife Trusts in Wales. And one of the things that they're doing is making sure that young people can raise their voice. They've deliberately taken on this issue of eco-anxiety, which is becoming a really big thing locally, and making sure that young people feel that they can do something active, generate their own projects to take action on the local uh, nature and making sure that it's being conserved. And in North Wales, we have a project uh, which is tackling climate change by working with groups of communities and demonstrating to those communities different measures that they can take. For example, they have taken uh, electric vehicles out into the community so that they can effectively try before they buy. And it means that people can not feel pressurised into it, but really see the benefits of, of slight adaptations to their lifestyles because all of us are going to have to make adaptations to our lifestyles over the coming years and decades. How important do you think councils are in addressing the climate emergency? And what role and support can local community groups provide? Councils are already doing a huge range of things related to tackling the climate emergency. As I understand it, over three quarters of councils now have declared a climate emergency and are actively working towards taking approaches, putting together projects to decrease the carbon emissions of their 
certainly their own emissions um, and increasingly looking at the impacts that they can support on the ground. We've just done some national lottery uh, research recently, which showed us that over 85% of people felt that local government or the local councils are responsible for taking measures to tackle climate change. And in the same survey, whilst we've been clearly able to see over the last few years that people are more and more aware of the climate issue, we've been able to show that over half of people, and that was pretty consistent across all parts of the country, 54% on average, felt that climate change was going to be a major issue and they were concerned about it on their local area. Local authorities clearly have a very big role to play in tackling the climate emergency. Community groups have a particularly strong entrance uh, as a sort of trusted intermediary, if you like, at a local level, and local authorities too. So I think that the interplay uh, between local authorities and the local communities when they, they're actively working together, actively supporting each other, is really interesting and important where those community groups can come in as well is to help to raise level of awareness amongst people locally and to respond to the local context and a real understanding of that local context is something that the local authorities absolutely have so taking the local context finding out what projects um, are most appropriate uh, to put in place and then bringing the local population along with them is an absolutely sweet spot for local authorities to play the range and the scale of projects that people have put forward are really exciting. So just really thinking creatively about the topic, but also uh, projects which are helping to train local leaders in some of the key issues through carbon literacy programmes, uh, through citizens' juries, through citizens' assemblies. So there's a really wide range of approaches that communities are taking across the UK on this topic. And as we look forward, I think the role of communities is that they will have an increasing role to play in both raising awareness, but also making sure that people can turn their concern into action, because that's one of the real blockers that we're seeing at the moment. The vast majority of the population are concerned about climate change in one way, shape or form, recognise that it's an issue. But it is a distant issue sometimes, and it can feel difficult to know what to do about it, not least because it's a global issue of concern. So one of the things that community groups can do and local authorities can support them with is really helping to develop that narrative of empowerment and making sure that through taking climate action people can see that they are able to visibly and tangibly play some part in tackling climate change locally. Now obviously national and international action is clearly vital in tackling climate change. What was your opinion about the outcomes of COP26 last year and what positives can you take from it? COP26 was obviously a really key moment. Having that big United Nations conference here on our doorsteps in Glasgow was such a key moment in raising awareness of what we can all do to tackle climate change and do that in our own backyards. I think one really interesting thing that came out of it was I actually visited Glasgow and saw people on the ground. There was a real strength of feeling, both very supportive of the fact that we now have woken up to this issue and are taking action across from national government scale, right down to individuals in their local communities, and critically, the key role that local authorities can play, because local authorities really have such a, a key role to play with the local planning structure, transport infrastructure, housing, even uh, education. The actual outcome of COP26 to many was a little bit disappointing, but I think it's given 
a lot of us uh, who work in the sector added impetus to make sure that we are all doing our bit on the ground and not just leaving it up to the national and international politics behind it all, which is very, very difficult to get right. Um, what's much easier to get right is the small steps that really can make a difference and get people started on their journey. And local authorities up and down the country are showing us how we can do that. So for example, Middlesbrough Council has a really ambitious green strategy and our funded project, uh, Climate Action Middlesbrough, which is uh, led by the Middlesbrough Environment Forum, actually attend the green strategy meetings held by the council and make sure that they're inputting and feeding back the local priorities from what they're hearing on the ground and that the green strategy is then formed around that and that the council's efforts can be tailored to what they're hearing uh, from people on the ground. So it's very much about getting that grassroots level concern up into real action being taken by the local authorities. So it, it really is a great opportunity, this, and COP26 has been a, a big eye-opener for a lot of us. I think we've gained added momentum to the wider movement, and our role now as a funder is to make sure that we can use that national lottery funding to get that out um, into local areas in the best way possible. From the conversations I've had, it was great to hear about the enthusiasm on a local level to tackle the climate emergency and about the genuine effort being made to support community action and to engage with as many people as possible. This is clearly essential to help the UK meet its target of achieving net zero by 2050. We're at a tipping point and without action now, we're facing an uncertain future. But if governments, businesses and individuals can work together and we have the right resources to match the gravity of the problem, then there is still time to turn things around. Until next time, I'm Katie Goodger and I hope this bonus episode has helped you to forget what you think you know about climate action.